Light roll. Good morning, Your Honor. Counsel, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the state calls uh, Dr. Bradford Langenfeld. Before you begin, uh, a couple things. If you feel comfortable taking the mask off, we, we'd prefer that you do that, but as a doctor, I can tell you I've had both my shots. <laughs> that helps. Uh, but we'd like you to state your full name, spelling each of your names. Sure. So Dr. Bradford Wonkade Langenfeld, B-R-A-D-F-O-R-D, W-A-N-K-H-E-D-E-L-A-N-G-E-N-F-E-L-D. And we can just call you Dr. Langenfeld. That's fine. Dr. Langenfeld, did you provide emergency care uh, to the, the body, to George Floyd, after he was taken to Hennepin County on the evening of May 25th? I did. Just by way of introduction, uh, are you the, the physician who officially pronounced him dead that night? That is correct, yes. Were you one of the physicians who tried to save his life? Sustained. Uh, did you administer care to George Floyd on May 25th, 2020? Yes. What were you trying to do? We were trying to uh, resuscitate Mr. Floyd. To save his life? Correct. So why don't we learn a little bit about your, your background, Dr. Langenfeld. Where are you currently employed? Uh, currently, I'm working at Grand Itasca Clinic and Hospital. Um, it's up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. It's my primary practice. And I also work in Waconia, Minnesota at Ridgeview Medical Center. And Waconia is in Carver County here? That's correct. Grand Rapids is several hours driving away from here. That's correct. Uh, why Grand Rapids? Uh, I was born there. It's also the hometown of Judy Garland, isn't it? It is, yes. Uh, are you licensed in emergency medicine? I have a Minnesota State medical license and practice emergency medicine. Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is emergency medicine as a practice for a doctor? It's a very broad practice, but primarily uh, involves taking care of patients suffering from critical ailments. Oh, sure. Critical ailments such as strokes, heart attacks, car accidents, um, other emergencies such as that, but also um, less emergent conditions, sore throats, urinary tract infections, things like that. When were you first licensed? Uh, May of 2020. Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury a little bit about your educational background? So I attended um, medical school at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and then residency training at Hennepin County Medical Center. 
And when did you finish your residency then? Last summer. Have you ever had any occasion to testify in a court before? No, I have not. This is the first time? That's correct. Let's go to uh, Monday, May 25th, 2020, uh, last year, Memorial Day. Uh, do you recall uh, whether you were working that evening? I was, yes. Uh, where were you? I was in the emergency department. At the, at the head of the county medical center? That's correct. And what was your position or title there? I was uh, one of the senior residents. Um, we're involved with direct patient care, including both critical care and overseeing some of the junior residents. Do you recall what time your shift began and ended? It began at about 1 p.m. that day and ended at approximately 11 p.m. And as, as a senior resident, what, what was your role? My role was primarily direct patient care. I work underneath um, attending physicians as a resident. Did you also oversee uh, any other residents? Yes. Which residents would you have overseen? More junior residents earlier in their residency training. Now, in terms of any, was, was care administered to George Floyd uh, on May 25th by yourself? Yes. Yeah. Uh, who was the person primarily responsible then for George Floyd's care in the Hennepin County Medical Center Emergency Department? I provided the majority of direct patient care under supervision of Dr. Ashley Strobel, who was my attending physician at the time. Were you the primary decision maker? I was. Were you the person responsible for much of the direct patient care? Yes. When Mr. Floyd's uh, body when Mr. Floyd was brought in, uh, would you describe it as an emergency situation? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what was his condition in terms of his cardiac condition? He was in cardiac arrest. And does cardiac arrest mean that he had had a heart attack or what does that mean? Not, not necessarily. Uh, what does cardiac arrest technically mean? Cardiac arrest is defined as sudden cessation of blood flow to all the tissues of the body when the heart stops pumping, uh, typically as evidenced by absence of a carotid pulse. So in, in lay people's terms, uh, if we were to say cardiac arrest means the heart stopped, would that be accurate? That's, yes. What was your, uh, your immediate objective when Mr. Floyd uh, comes in and he's in cardiac arrest? What were you immediately trying to do? Find a way to get the heart to pump on its own again. The primary goal in cases such as this is to achieve ROSC, uh, which means return of spontaneous circulation. And part of that process involves trying to identify the cause of the arrest to see if there's any reversible causes um, and continuing CPR and other life-saving measures. Time is of the essence? Yes. How did you first learn that Mr. Floyd was being transported to the emergency department at Hennepin County Medical Center? I received a, we call it a zip it page. It's basically a EMS notification. Now first tell us what EMS is. Emergency Medical Services. 
and uh, and a zip it is it uh, essentially a text type message or what would you how would you describe a zip it? It's, it's sort of like a, a you know, encrypted text. What what time did the zip it come in? I don't recall exactly. Um, maybe around eight fifty p.m. What information was provided to you for his care or treatment by Zippet? The information was that it was a 30-year-old unidentified male um, who was in cardiac arrest. Uh, and um, that's as much as I can recall at this time, yeah. Do you recall whether any information was given to you as to what may have happened uh, to him ahead of time before he got there to explain the cardiac arrest? Not, not at the time, not, not before he got there. Uh, did you know at the time he arrived that the patient was, in fact, George Floyd? I did not. So you learned that at some point later, that it was George Floyd? Yes. Uh, did you um, also know at the time that there was a video or any videos uh, that depicted what had happened to Mr. Floyd before he was transported to the Hennepin County Medical Center on May 25th? No. Grounds? Overruled. You can answer. Were you aware of the existence of any videos as to what may have happened before he arrived at, uh, at Hennepin County Medical Center on May 25th? No. Uh, did you subsequently learn about videos? Yes. Uh, were you able to evaluate uh, your assessments about George Floyd in light of the videos? Yes. Uh, we'll talk about those a little bit later. So when you received uh, this zip it, what did you do in response to it? We prepared a bay in our stabilization room, which is a, essentially a large room with a lot of critical care resources. Um, we sort of prepped a team and got ready to take care of the patient when he arrived. Do you recall roughly what time uh, Mr. Floyd would have arrived in, uh, in the in the emergency room? Approximately 8.55 p.m. And when he arrived uh, then, uh, was had CPR been started? Yes. Um, any mechanical devices or other things being used to help to uh, stabilize it? Yes, there was a Lucas CPR device, which is a, basically a mechanical device that sits across the body with uh, something that almost looks like a plunger and pushes against the chest to provide CPR or chest compressions. So, so this Lucas device then was on Mr. Floyd uh, when he arrived in at the hospital. Correct. Uh, did you ever observe at any point in time uh, that his heart was beating on its own? Not to a degree sufficient to sustain life. Do you recall who brought Mr. Floyd into the emergency department? I do. Uh, I do recall two paramedics um, and possibly one or two other people, but I don't remember exactly. Do you recall whether there were any police officers there also? I don't personally recall that, no. Did the paramedics uh, who arrived uh, at the emergency department give you a report? They did. 
Uh, do you recall what they said for purposes of treating Mr. Floyd? I do. Um, the report they gave us is that they were called to the scene of someone who was suffering from a medical emergency. As I recall, and this, this is what I was told at the time, they were initially called for a, a lower type of acuity event of facial trauma, and then that was upgraded to an individual in distress. Uh, they reported that on their arrival, the individual did not have a pulse, and CPR was started. Um, they placed an eye gel, which is a supraglottic airway device. It's basically a... A super what? Supraglottic airway device. It's just a sort of a tube that goes down into the throat and can ventilate the lungs. Um, and then they gave medications, including epinephrine and sodium bicarbonate, um, to try to resuscitate Mr. Floyd as CPR was ongoing. Did they tell you that Mr. Floyd was in police custody? They did mention that he was um, being detained at the time. Now, did you recognize uh, either one of the paramedics who came in? I did. I, I did recognize both of them. Um, and I worked with one of them several times before. Uh, Derek Smith, uh, did you know a Derek Smith? I believe so, yes. And do you recall having worked with a Derek Smith before? I do. Uh, how often? Several times um, throughout the course of my training. When, when the paramedics bring a patient in uh, to the emergency department, it, is it standard protocol for them to tell you why they are bringing the patient in? What's the emergency? Yes. And uh, what the paramedics told you when they brought in Mr. Floyd, did they also then give you information uh, when they brought Mr. Floyd in? They did. They essentially gave the report that I just that I just told you, yes. Did, did they say to you for purposes of caring or giving treatment to Mr. Floyd that they felt he had uh, suffered a drug overdose? Not in the information they gave, no. Did they tell you in the information they gave uh, that they felt that Mr. Floyd had had a heart attack? No. Did you receive any information or indication from the paramedics when they brought Mr. Floyd in? that anyone had attempted CPR on Mr. Floyd at the scene on May 25th, 2020? I did not receive a report that Mr. Floyd had received bystander CPR, no. Did you uh, receive a report that he had received uh, CPR from any of the officers who may have been on the scene on May 25th, 2020? No. Is uh, the administration of CPR uh, right away important for you to know uh, when you're dealing with a patient who has suffered cardiac arrest? Is it important for you to know about that? It is in the sense that it informs the likelihood of survival.
And, and what do you mean by that, Dr. Langenfeld? It's well known that any amount of time that a patient spends in cardiac arrest without immediate CPR um, markedly decreases the chance of a good outcome. Uh, approximately 10 to 15 percent decrease in survival uh, for every minute that CPR is not administered. Did the paramedics then tell you anything about the care that they had administered to Mr. Floyd? Yes. Uh, can you tell us what they told you? That they had started CPR and um, placed that airway device and started bagging the patient, as in providing breaths, and then administering those drugs. Yes. And so when you talk about bagging the, the patient, uh, could you describe what that is? Uh, yeah, it's called a BVM or a bag valve mask. Uh, it's essentially a device that's hooked up to oxygen on flow to simulate giving a breath or mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, as it might be more better understood. But, yeah. Did the par paramedic start something uh, that's referred to as the ACLS algorithm? Yes. Uh, would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is the ACLS algorithm? So ACLS stands for Advanced Cardiac Life Support. Um, it's basically a standardized way of taking care of patients in cardiac arrest. And so these are protocols or sort of a checklist process you go through when somebody shows up in cardiac arrest? Correct. It's a little broader than that, but a big part of it is for folks in cardiac arrest, yes. Is, is it to help you to determine why the person might be in cardiac arrest so you know how to treat them? Yes. Have the paramedics tried to resuscitate Mr. Floyd? Yes. Uh, did, do you recall how long? The report received was, we received was the, for approximately 30 minutes. Now, you had mentioned uh, to us just a moment ago that they had administered epinephrine and sodium bicarbonate. Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what are those administered for? Epinephrine is colloquially known as adrenaline. Um, it's a drug that has been studied extensively and uh, is part of the standard protocol for ACLS. Um, the evidence on it is somewhat controversial, but it is part of the standard protocol. Sodium bicarbonate um, is a medication that uh, may provide some buffering of the acidic environment in the blood that occurs during cardiac arrest, and that is perhaps a more controversial medication than epinephrine. Did the paramedics tell you whether they had checked Mr. Floyd's heart function? Yes. Well, let me ask that a different way. Uh, I want to talk to you about two different kind of heart functions and see if you can describe what they are uh, to the jury and uh, how or if they relate to Mr. Floyd. Uh, the first one we refer to as PEA. Uh, do you know what PEA refers to? Yes. So. PEA refers to pulseless electrical activity. It's basically 
a situation where someone is in cardiac arrest, they do not have a pulse, as we previously discussed, and they do have some electrical activity on the monitor. Um, and that suggests certain underlying causes that are known to be more common. The most common cause of someone being in PEA arrest, uh, the most common causes are hypovolemia, either from typically bleeding or from hypoxia or low oxygen. So we'll talk about those in more detail. But was Mr. Floyd in PEA status, pulseless electrical activity, when you saw him on May 25th? He was, yes. And there is uh, another term I'd like to talk about and have you explain to the jury. Uh, a systole, I think it's called. Uh, am I pronouncing that right, by the way? A systole, yeah. Yes. Would you spell that for ladies and gentlemen of the jury? A-S-Y-S-T-O-L-E. And what is that, Dr. Langenfeld? Uh, it's probably best known as flatlining, um, where there's no cardiac activity on the cardiac monitor and the patient is in cardiac arrest. And so was Mr. Floyd in a systole status also when, uh, when his body was brought in to head up the county emergency department on May 25th? At, at some point, yes, uh, there was report that at some point he was felt to be in asystole prior to arrival. And, and was he, and asystole meaning flatline, was there any point in time uh, during your treatment of Carol May 25th that Mr. Floyd was anything other than flatlined during your care and treatment of him? There were times, for the majority of his time in our emergency department, he was in PEA arrest. Ultimately, that did devolve into asystole. Uh, is uh, pulseless, pulseless electrical activity, PEA arrest, asystole, are those conditions of the heart where you can simply apply a shock and potentially bring the patient back? No. Um, what are what we refer to as shockable rhythms? Is there such a thing as a shockable rhythm? So typically these are thought of as either ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, which are basically abnormal rhythms of the heart that are more commonly associated with cardiac arrest, specifically from a heart attack. Um, and they are rhythms that you can administer electricity to and shock a patient back into a normal rhythm. But Mr. Floyd didn't have ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. Correct. Uh, because his heart wasn't pumping. Yes, because he did, yes. In both situations, um, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but yes, he was not in V-fib or VT as we commonly call them. Do you recall, were there still handcuffs on Mr. Floyd when he was brought into the emergency department? I don't specifically recall if they were on when he immediately arrived, but it would be unlikely because he had the Lucas CPR device on, and I, I recall his hands being at his sides. Uh, do you recall with his hands at his sides whether there were indentations or marks on his wrist? At the end of the, the case, yes. 
after he was declared dead. What did you observe in that regard? What was, I'm sorry, can you? Uh, in terms of uh, any uh, indentations on his wrist or markings on I, his wrist? I inferred that it was from handcuffs. So let's talk about then the, uh, the, the care you then provided once the paramedics have brought Mr. Floyd uh, to the emergency department. Um, what did you do? So immediately on arrival, we took report from the paramedics. Mr. Floyd, as we knew him at the time, only as an unidentified individual, was transferred over to the bed in the emergency department. Um, as I recall, multiple things typically will happen simultaneously in, this, in these cases, but we achieved additional uh, access. Um, I placed uh, intraosseous line in his bone in his leg. Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what interosseous It's is? basically a, um, a type of IV um, that goes in, in through the bone and injects fluid or medications directly into the, the bone marrow, essentially. Um, it's a type of access that's easier to achieve in someone who's in cardiac arrest. And did you also go through the advanced cardiac life support protocols? Yes, so simultaneous to that and obtaining uh, blood draw and continuing chest compressions, et cetera, um, went through various different things that could be causing this. Um, commonly in the ACLS protocol, these are thought of as the H's and T's specifically with regard to the PEAA systole algorithm. Well, let's, uh, if we could, take a look at the H's and the T's. Sure. Uh, so, Brett, if you could pull up, uh, I think, 900. I'm showing you what's marked as Exhibit uh, 900 for, for illustrative purposes. Sober. They're in a sidebar. Good morning. This is day six of the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. George Floyd trial of the of the first cop, Derek Chauvin. Chauvin, they're in a sidebar for a few minutes, and they have the doctor from the emergency room on the stand. Their sidebar is done with headphones so that they're socially distanced. They don't approach the judge. They put on headphones from their desk area where they're seated in the court. It's modern technology. 
in the prosecution, attorneys, he's questioning Dr. Lagenfeld or Langenfeld. the Hennepin County Medical Center where George Floyd was transported May 25th, 2020. And we did have a 4.0 rock the California area 4.0 earthquake early this morning around 4.44 and about 30 minutes before that we had a shake, an earthquake shake. Not quite 4.4 in the three-point range. It was strong, but the 4.4 was noticeably stronger. It was uh, something that really gets your attention. And it was over and done. A shake and bake and over and done before you know it. We didn't experience any noticeable property damage. But that's because a lot of the properties are retrofitted if they were built prior to the 19. 70 era buildings are on wheels so that when the earth jolts the building doesn't have to fall it can roll around and sway from one side to the next in the event that the earthquake is in the higher elevations that may or may not be the case, but we have been fortunate yet again, most fortunate that early in the morning, of course, this is a city that like New York, Los Angeles is always busy. People are always going on the freeway. Dr. Langenfeld, uh, going back to Exhibit 900, on the uh, H's and the T's, uh, which were uh, part of the, uh, the protocols uh, for advanced cardiac life support, uh, could you uh, briefly explain to the jurors what the H's and T's are? So these are... 
common reversible causes of cardiac arrest in individuals, typically in PEA or asystole cardiac arrest. Um, a lot of these etiologies are perhaps best evaluated through an ultrasound-based approach, but I can go through all of these. So hypovolemia, typically hemorrhage or bleeding, um, so we would think of that more in a traumatic cardiac arrest. Hypoxia, low oxygen, um, again, those being the two most common causes of PEAA systole arrest. Hydrogen ions, um, uh, acidosis can be from any number of causes, but essentially where the pH in the blood gets so low that the heart cannot function. Hypohyperkalemia is low or high potassium, um, it being a very important electrolyte for proper cardiac function and disturbances on the extreme can lead to cardiac arrest. Hypothermia, very cold. Um, toxins, there's a lot of different toxins that can cause cardiac arrest. And that's from poisons to potentially drugs. Correct. Um, tamponade specifically refers to fluid around the heart uh, that can prevent the heart from filling um, and then lead to uh, the heart stopping. Um, tension pneumothorax is air around the lung, between the lung and the chest wall that um, essentially expands to the point where it prevents blood flow from returning to the heart um, and therefore leading to cardiac arrest. Cardiac thrombosis um, specifically can refer to a heart attack um, or a ruptured plaque in one of the coronary arteries of the heart. And pulmonary thrombosis or pulmonary embolism is a blood clot in the pulmonary arteries um, that prevents blood from flowing from one side to the other of the heart and therefore leading to the heart no longer functioning. And you, you mentioned ultrasound. Uh, what is the role of ultrasound in studying or trying to assess the cause of cardiac arrest? Ultrasound can be used to evaluate many of these different causes. Um, I think people would be most familiar with ultrasound from you know, movies where they look at the baby uh, using an ultrasound device or a small probe on the abdomen, but it's the same technology. Um, so uh, we can look at uh, the heart directly and see if there's fluid around the heart, for example. Um, we can evaluate for a large right ventricle that might be suggestive of a pulmonary thrombosis um, uh, due to increased strain on that side of the heart. Um, we can look for evidence of hemorrhage, hypovolemia, by looking in the abdomen to see if there's any bleeding or bleeding elsewhere. Um, we can look for uh, evidence of tension pneumothorax. For example, we can evaluate for what's called sliding signs. On both sides of the chest that would suggest that the lungs are up and are um, there's no air between the lung and the chest wall so we can that use lungs, it to that the lungs are properly inflated then. exactly yep so we can use it to evaluate for um, a large number of these etiologies so so you you went through the the protocols of the H's and the T's uh, did you have any kind of leading theories for treatment purposes as to what the most likely causes were for Mr. Floyd's cardiac arrest? I, I felt that I was able to determine that some 
etiologies or causes were less likely based on the information that I had both from the paramedics and also the information I was able to obtain from my exam and ultrasound, et cetera. Um, at the time, based on all the information I had, I thought it was less likely that uh, the patient had suffered from, for example, cardiac tamponade. There was no fluid around the heart, tension pneumothorax. Um, we can discuss that briefly. At one point in the case, I was concerned that he may have developed a tension pneumothorax, but I felt it was unlikely we did, in fact, perform bilateral finger thoracostomies where we entered the chest. Um, I'll ask another question. Um, you, you were uh, explaining to the, the jury uh, that you thought it was not likely a cardiac uh, uh, tamponade. Then you're explaining why you thought the tension pneumothorax was not likely. Correct. And uh, could you, in, uh, in plain English, help the jurors to understand how you might have eliminated that? We, we essentially um, used a scalpel to cut into the chest um, and create a hole between the chest and the potential space around the lungs. We did not appreciate any large gush of air that might suggest that there was air in that potential space. Was, was there anything that you looked at uh, to determine uh, whether or not the cardiac arrest was likely or unlikely to be related to Mr. Floyd having had a heart attack? A lot of that is based on the history that we received from paramedics. There was no report that, for example, the patient complained of chest pain or was clutching his chest at any point um, or having any other symptoms to suggest a heart attack, that information was absent. Um, also the fact that he was in PEAA systole, as I, as I was told on the initial rhythm check, um, uh, further decreases the likelihood of that possibility. Um, at the time, it was not completely possible to rule that out, but I felt that it was less likely based on the information that was available to us. Did the ultrasound play any role in the question of whether or not he did or, or did not or was likely not to have had a heart attack? No, not especially in this case, no. Did not. Did you uh, consider uh, the possibility of toxins, for example? being uh, responsible for Mr. Floyd's cardiac arrest, including potentially drugs? In the sense that it might have informed our care, yes. Um, I didn't, there was again no report that this patient had, for example, overdosed on a specific medication such as a calcium channel blocker or any other medication for which there might be a very specific antidote. Um, so in that sense, I didn't feel that there was a, a specific toxin that we could give a medication for that would readily reverse um, his arrest. And what about then hypoxia? So hypoxia being, again, one of the most common causes of PEAA systole just in general, um, I did then 
as I'd mentioned, uh, used the ultrasound to look in the abdomen and did not see any evidence of hemorrhage. There was no uh, obvious significant external trauma that would have suggested that he suffered um, anything that could produce bleeding sufficient to lead to a cardiac arrest. And so uh, based on the history that was available to me, um, I felt that hypoxia was one of the more likely possibilities. And, and hypoxia as an explanation for his cardiac arrest, meaning uh, oxygen, oxygen insufficiency. Correct. Did you have any other uh, leading theories as to why Mr. Floyd's heart may have stopped uh, other than oxygen deficiency? Yes. Um, I also considered uh, an acidosis. Um, in, in particular, uh, excited delirium, which is a controversial diagnosis, but it, it was in the differential in this case. And were you able to make any assessments about uh, so-called excited delirium based on your examination of Mr. Floyd? Again, the patient had been in cardiac arrest for 30 minutes. Um, it, it can be difficult based on the examination. Um, certainly there was no report that the patient was ever very sweaty, which is often the case um, when thinking about excited delirium. There was no report that the patient had ever been, uh, that Mr. Floyd had ever been extremely agitated. Um, in my experience, seeing a lot of cases of mental health crises or um, drug use leading to severe agitated states, um, that is almost always reported by paramedics. Um, and so the absence of that information was telling and that I didn't have any reason to believe that that was the case here. So when you, how, how long uh, was Mr. Floyd uh, in your care in the emergency department? Approximately 30 minutes. And at the end of the 30 minutes, uh, did you pronounce him uh, formally uh, dead? Yes. Uh, at the time you pronounced him dead, was he still in some degree uh, in uh, PEA or asystole in terms of describing his heart? I, I think it's probably best to think of these as sort of a spectrum um, where PEA is some degree of electrical activity still running through the heart, but the heart's not pumping. Um, and then eventually that will devolve into asystole where both the heart is not pumping and then the electrical activity stops as well. And so at the end of the case, um, the, Mr. Floyd was still in PEA, but there was virtually no cardiac activity. Um, and, and at that point, in, in the absence of any apparent reversible cause, and because Mr. Floyd had been in arrest for, by this time, 60 minutes, I determined that the likelihood of any meaningful outcome was far below 1% and that we would not be able to resuscitate Mr. Floyd. And so I then pronounced him dead. And, and doctor, uh, was your leading theory then for the cause of Mr. Floyd's cardiac arrest oxygen, oxygen deficiency? 
that was one of the more likely possibilities. I felt that at the time, based on the information I had, it was more likely than the other possibilities. And, and doctor, is there another name for death by oxygen deficiency? Asphyxia is a commonly understood term. Thank you, Dr. Langenfeld. No further questions. Mr. Nelson. And they're back on a sidebar. Or maybe they're going to take another break. Oh, they finished with the good doctor already. Looks like they're finished. Maybe forty five minutes with fifty two forty six. There's six minutes, but the judge moved away from the camera and he said something. This mask, it's not always easy to understand what they're saying. But it's a good chance that they're done with Dr. Bradford Langenfeld, L-A-N-G-E-N-F-E-L-D, Langenfeld. The notes said, fired Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, 44, stands trial in the alleged murder of George Floyd, 46. As seen on the footage, the defendant kneeled on the victim's neck for minutes until after the man became unresponsive during an arrest over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill on May 25th, 2020. And that was nine minutes and 29 seconds that he was kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Jurors must determine under the law if Floyd died because of Chauvin's actions or if it was really something else. The medical examiner noted that he also had 
arteriosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease and also fentanyl and evidence of recent meth use. Both sides jockeyed over evidence amid jury selection. Chauvin once told another officer in a separate arrest to apply a hobble restraint, a kind of a restraining belt used by law enforcement in a hog tie position, although a woman allegedly did not put up much resistance. The state can also show evidence that the defendant knew how it was dangerous to kneel on the neck of the prone Floyd to read the rest of this article written by Aaron Keller in Alberto Luperon https colon forward slash forward slash l a w a n d c r i m e dot com forward slash l i v e dash t r i a L S that's law and crime.com forward slash live dash trials. And they're live on Peacock Daily Free on www.peacocktv.com forward slash watch forward slash home. Click on channels and scroll down to Law and Crime Network. You'll need the Peacock app from your app store or your Play Store. It's a free app and it's a free TV app. That's Peacock, P-E-A-C-O-C-K-T-V dot com. www.peacocktv.com forward slash flash forward slash watch forward slash home if you're watching P 
Peacock TV online, you type that in your browser. Oh, the judge, the judge is back. Good morning, Your Honor. Thank you. Before I call the state's next witness, I'd like to offer uh, two exhibits into the record that were published yesterday, exhibits 75 and 267. Those are received. They're showing... The state calls John Edwards. They're showing day five, Friday. I'll repeat... Stating your full name, spelling each of your names. My name is John Curtis Edwards, J O N C U R T I S E D W A R D S. Would you please uh, tell the jury your occupation? Minneapolis Police Sergeant. How long have you held that position? 2007, so approximately 14 years. Uh, not as a sergeant, but as a police officer for 14 years? Yes, sir. All right. So you started as a police officer in 2007. Did you start with the Minneapolis Police Department? I started as a cadet in the cadet program. All right. But that was your first job in law enforcement? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, you started as a cadet. Um, describe that experience, uh, if you would. Uh, the cadet program is a curriculum designed for those who have graduated college from accredited college um, to undergo uh, more criminal justice and law classes, um, as well as uh, partaking skills, um, as well as um, um, various scenario-based simulations pertaining to law enforcement. Um, it's a curriculum designed with the end goal of becoming post-certified by the uh, post board. And the post is the Police Officer Standards and Training Board, is that right? Correct. Okay. And that's how you get your license to be a police officer in the state of Minnesota, correct? Correct. After obtaining that, you can be a officer, uh, a licensed peace officer in the state of Minnesota. And you occasionally take... Oh, yes. You occasionally take continuing education credits to uh, keep your license current? Correct. And you do that as part of in-service training, is that Correct. right? Correct. Okay. So after you graduated from the academy and became post-certified, uh, what was your job duties? 
And we're out of time. And we're almost out of time for this segment, but John Edwards, Sergeant John Edwards' testimony is already posted on the playlist either Friday it would have been the third the second or Thursday April 1st we're out of time for this segment thank you for listening Be safe, be well. If you see any emergencies, call your emergency unit right away. You don't have to stand by and watch and wait and hope for a police officer to do the right thing if they're doing the wrong thing take swift action and report it right away if you see someone in danger in crisis you can report it request your emergency medical help right away you don't have to wait or hope that someone in uniform might do the right thing to help a citizen. You can call on your phone right away. Please don't wait. Please don't interfere with the police or argue with the police. It can only turn out bad for everyone. It only takes a couple minutes to just make the phone call to get the emergency services there. You can also call for a police officer supervisor anytime you have a confrontation. If you're stopped, you can ask the officer right away for the supervisor to come to your location. You can also go online and or look for the stop. Oh, I'll put it in the notes because we're running out of time. It's called the Safe Cops Stops app coming out this month, later this month, Safe Cops Stops app. You can have that on your phone, and if you're stopped by the cops, your phone can be set up to become voice-activated, record everything between you and the police officer, and if your phone is Android, you can also have it with a panic button so that you can hit the panic button. You can have an attorney come on your phone and 
speak up for you right there while the officer is there. So take care.